Hello and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've decided to join us. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And this was a damn interesting week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. From The Guardian, there is a lovely piece on a book club that spent 28 years reading Finnegan's Wake. Oh, hmm. it would take about that long. That sounds right. 28 <laughs> years, right? 28 yeah. years. Now, this is like an entire lifetime, basically. But it was a group in Venice, California. They started the difficult James Joyce book back in 1995, and they reached its final page just this October. Wow. OMG. Yeah, a quarter of a century. And it was all started by a guy named Jerry Fialka, an experimental filmmaker from Venice, California. It is known to be one of the most famously difficult texts in literary history. And at first, they read two pages a month. Mm -hmm. But that was too much. They had to slow it down to <laughs> one page per discussion. And at that pace, the group, which now meets on Zoom, yeah, it took them 28 years, as mentioned. Quote, that amount of time could well be a record. That's Sam Sloat, a Joyce expert at Trinity College, Dublin. He's one of the editors of How Joyce Wrote Finnegan's Wake. And he has his own weekly wake group in Dublin, which is made up of about a dozen Joyce scholars. Hmm. And they are on track to read through the text in a brisk 15 years. Oh, wow. <laughs> Show offs. <laughs> it is, in fact, if you're not familiar with the text, it's 628 pages. It's an experimental text. It took the author 17 years to complete. And mm. it included a four-year stretch of near-complete writer's block, which, mm. understandable. Now, Ulysses is one of Joyce's novels that has probably the most recognized or widespread reputation as a difficult novel. But Finnegan's Wake is a whole different level. There are ongoing debates to this day over very basic points, like, where and when the novel is set, uh -huh. <laughs> or who the characters are. And that's in part because it's written in a mishmash of reinvented words, puns, allusions. It also contains references to roughly 80 different languages. And I'd also imagine after 17 years, it's kind of hard to keep the thread constant. You know? <laughs> well, there is no thread. Like, I I've That's read parts of it. It's absolute garbage. Not garbage. That's not right. Because it is, it is interesting. But it literally, like, people go into it thinking, like, oh, it's just a hard book. It's not. It's an absolute gobbledygook of words that do mean something. And if you dig deep enough into it, you can be like, oh, this entire page is architecture puns. I get it now. But <laughs> it is so insane. No, one page a month sounds about right, to be honest, if you're trying to understand what's happening on that page. To even call it a novel is a little bit misleading, right? It's more like a super layered fever dream that has compounded upon itself that you need to be like a, an oracle of Delphi mm -hmm. and have your sister oracles to kind of help you make sense of it. And that's also why Fialka describes his group not just as a book group, but more as a performance art piece than a book club. He's also referred to it as a living organism, a hootenanny, and a choir. <laughs> now, the club's early atmosphere was kind of chaotic. 
Bruce Woodside, a 74-year-old retired Disney animator who joined Fialka's reading group in the 1990s, said, this is just gibberish. And he, in fact, dropped out of Fialka's group for about two decades. But after he retired, he's like, you know what? It's time to Yeah, it's a social club at that point. And that's fine. But you missed 20 of the 28 years. You didn't read the book. Come on. (laughs) Well, and he tried to go to other book groups, including there was a Proust reading group that had pivoted to reading Finnegan's Uh. Wake, almost like some kind of virus running rampant through book clubs. But he said it was hard to find anyone, quote, who was really delivering a lot of intelligent commentary on the book. And besides that, Jerry's group was just fun. He said in the 20 years he had missed, the group had advanced from chapter one to chapter 15. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness gracious. (laughs) And because Joyce spent 17 years of his life working on the book and then died not long after it was published, he didn't really get to explain it. So it's up to us as readers to figure it out and to figure out why he was so devoted to it. And Joyce himself would probably be tickled pink to hear of these endeavors. He once described the perfect reader of Finnegan's Wake as, quote, suffering from an ideal insomnia. (laughs) Or a gullible schmuck. Who or, bought my book. <laughs> yeah. And I've always been stunned that the publishers published it. Because, look, you can understand that there's genius behind it or not. But any publisher should have looked at that and gone, there is no way, man, that just it's not happening. And I think the only well, reason he got it was because he was already famous enough that they're like, OK, fine. Like, yeah. just give us another one after this. OK, like there may be something to that. And it seems like he was branding himself as some kind of like neo writer in some ways. One, another quote attributed to Joyce is the demand I make of my reader is that he should devote his entire life to reading my works, which if oh. you think about this group, hey, they're they're doing right. It right. They're getting there. <laughs> and to emphasize the media report saying this group has finished, mm, that's not quite correct because it doesn't end. Yeah. In part because the last sentence of the book ends mid-sentence and then it picks up at the front of the book. Yeah. It is intended to be cyclical. It is intended to never end. Yeah, they're not going to give up on their club now. They're just going to go back to page one because there's got to be people in the club. I mean, there's that guy who missed 20 years. So he's got a middle section he's got to get to. (laughs) You're exactly right. Fialka, in his own words, to close out the article, quote, there is no next book. We are only reading one book forever. (laughs) It it gets a little more culty when you put it that way. Mm -hmm. There there were other aspects that I was going to mention. Ooh, sounds like a cult to me. Yeah. Did James Joyce write anything that was palatable? Well, depends on palatable. I mean, yeah, like Ulysses is like, it's like War and Peace, but it's doable. It's a novel. Okay. Yeah, I really enjoyed Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. Mm -hmm. I think it was like semi-autobiographical, but it was quite a good read. I've heard that's the most approachable, but you could always try the audiobook version of Finnegan's Wake. That has to be a boot. (laughs) No, I could totally fall asleep to that for 30 years. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from ArsTechnica.com, and it's titled, From Toy to Tool, Dolly 3 is a wake-up call for visual artists and the rest of us. Mm. Oh. Yeah, so in October, OpenAI launched its newest image generator, Dolly 3, into wide release for ChatGPT subscribers, and also on Bing, if you search Bing Image Creator, that's just free. Uh, If you're just tuning in to this whole scene, Dolly 3 is an AI model or a neural network that uses a technique called latent diffusion to pull images it recognizes based on written prompts provided by a user, or in this case, by ChatGPT. 
So you basically you just type in a description of what you want to see and Dolly creates it. And this article is full of different types of images, such as an oil painting of Hercules fighting a shark, a photo <laughs> of the queen of the universe, and Abraham Lincoln holding a sign that's intended to say Ars Technica, but it says Ars Technica mm-hmm. because it can't quite do text yet, but it's getting there. Mm-hmm. So ChatGPT and Dolly 3 currently work hand in hand, making AI art generation into an interactive and conversational experience because you can tell ChatGPT what you'd like it to generate. It writes the ideal prompts for you and then submits them to the Dolly backend, which returns the images and you see them appear in ChatGPT. Many times ChatGPT will vary the artistic medium of the output, so you might see the same subject depicted in a range of styles such as photo, illustration, render, oil painting, or vector art, and you can also change the aspect ratio of the generated image. OpenAI hasn't revealed the dataset used to train Dolly, but if its previous models are any indication, it's likely <laughs> that OpenAI used hundreds of millions of images found online and licensed from Shutterstock libraries. Yep. To learn visual concepts, the AI process typically associates words from descriptions of images found online through captions, alt tags, and metadata with the images themselves. However, those scraped captions written by humans aren't always detailed or accurate, which can lead to some faulty associations that reduce an AI model's ability to follow a written prompt. Basically, trash in, trash out. It's all about the data set. Right. To get around that problem, OpenAI decided to use AI to improve itself. As detailed in the Dolly 3 research paper, the team at OpenAI trained this new model to surpass its predecessor by using synthetic or AI-written image captions generated by GPT-4V, the visual version of GPT-4. With GPT-4V writing the captions, this team generated far more accurate and detailed descriptions for the DALI model to learn from during the training process, which made a world of difference in terms of DALI's prompt fidelity, accurately rendering what's written in the prompt. So they admit (laughs) that they trained this on Shutterstock. Isn't that like an entire repository of licensed media? (laughs) Well, yeah, but if you pay the license. You be paid for the license. I guess that's it, huh? Oh, that's so... And the whole thing with Shutterstock is like, we don't know that's where they got the images, but it's likely from one of these big services, probably like Getty. And while it is technically legal to the letter of the law, it's still certainly, you know, it feels like something else. Mm -hmm. Gwendolyn Wood, an illustrator and graphic designer based in Seattle, who replied to questions from Ars Technica and frequently works in non-digital media such as watercolors says, I don't want to use the technology. It's literally a giant stew of plagiarism. (laughs) In some ways, AI art is a continuation of an ancient trend. For thousands of years, innovations in art have made it easier for humans to make complex art faster. Metal chisels, paper, paintbrushes, mass-produced paints, pencils, cameras, airbrushes, digital photo editors, and vector illustration software were all revolutionary in their day. And I'll add, we're all kind of decried as the end of art as we know it, right. which was accurate, but it was not at the end of art. Right. But faster isn't always better, according to Wood, who prefers the satisfying and often therapeutic process of creating art by hand. She says everyone should create art with their hands. AI art is not giving people a skill. It's taking away a more joyful experience they could have physically creating art if they could be humble enough to enjoy the process of learning. That's on the extreme end of it. Yeah, yeah. And on the flip side, as wholesome as handmade art sounds, not everybody can physically create art due to mental or physical limitations. Over the past year, Ars Technica has heard from several people with disabilities who enjoy using image synthesis to express themselves in ways they could not otherwise. One user wrote on Reddit in December 2020, I have stage four cancer and AI art actually gave me reason to keep fighting it. Wow. I no longer have to wait till I'm not doing chemo to figure out how to draw hair or decide if I should even learn if I won't live long enough to see on paper what I had in mind. Why do we have to do things the same way it has always been done? 
Another artist, Claire Silver, has been using AI art collaboratively since 2018 and gained renown from it, becoming the first AI augmented artist to sign with a WME talent agency. She said to Ars Technica, I have a chronic disabling illness. I grew up in poverty and have changed my family's life with my AI art. Wow. Yeah, she sees most criticism of AI art as being short-sighted. The technology exists and will have an undeniable impact, both positive and negative, based on how it's used. She says, AI is transformative in the same way that cavemen discovering fire was transformative. Fire isn't good or bad, it just is. And for better and worse, we can't go back to the darkness. Yeah, I agree with that. I think you can talk all day about whether it's good or bad, but the fact is it's here. It's a done deal. The genie's (laughs) out of the bottle. So you can figure out how to work with it or you can figure out how to restrict it. But the idea of like, oh, we should just act like it never got invented. It's too late. No, yeah, too late. Yeah. And the article goes on. It's kind of talking points that you've already heard. There's a lot of discussion about how AI art can't generate certain things or it can't do specific sorts of tasks. But the fact is, that's just because people only know about DALI. With tools like Stable Diffusion, there's something called ControlNet, where you can literally analyze a pose from an existing photo, extract the pose data as kind of like a stick figure, and then use that as the (gasps) mount or reference for the image to generate Mm -hmm. onto. So I personally feel like if it can be used in a way to augment and improve and speed somebody up while it still stays true to their own style, I think that it could be good. And we already have it in, in music. There's a lot of that AI in mixing, mm-hmm. and you can still maintain your own style. You just tweak it a little bit. Yeah, and that's a good comparison, because mm-hmm. it's kind of like, you know, why why are you using a drum loop? You should buy a drum kit and buy the 808s <laughs> uh-huh. and record it yourself. Mm-hmm. That's what true creativity is about, you know, mm-hmm. like that kind of yeah. thing. And, you know, one of the interesting things that the article ends on is that in the future, everyone might be a creative director of some kind, where you're able to use all of these tools in order to create your own aesthetics or to use them for branding and so on. And I mean, even just the impact for individuals running businesses who cannot afford good design material, like that is huge because that has such a massive impact on how your business is viewed. And you might just be the person who is just not an artist, but you literally can't afford it to bootstrap your business. Mm -hmm. And you can tell the AI as many times as you want to make the logo bigger. They'll never fight you. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. Okay, speaking of artists, I'm actually going to start this with a question. Of all the different types of entertainers, artists, or performers, which would you guess was least prone to mental illness? Ooh. And if you guessed painter, what? (laughs) This is from the BBC. Magicians less prone to mental illness. (laughs) No. Arrested uh-huh. Development lied to me. Uh-huh. <laughs> we all know it's super common that painters, musicians, comedians, actors, and painters have right, long right. been known to suffer with their mental health. But the same is not true of magicians. According to Aberystwyth University, it's a tough word, they're all but exempt from the inner turmoil experienced wow. by other artists. So the study published in BJ Psych Open measured the psychological traits of 195 magicians and 233 people from general population and compared it with the data from other creative groups. The findings showed that on three key measures of psychosis, or degrees of losing contact with reality, magicians are significantly less likely to suffer than artists, musicians, and comedians. Wow. They're less likely to have hallucinations or cognitive disorganization, one of my favorite phrases. (laughs) 
Dr. Gil Greengross from the university's psychology department compared their mental health profiles more to those of mathematicians and scientists, which to me makes sense. Magic is mostly about making up crazy gadgets or contraptions that require a high level of engineering. Mm. Another thing that separates magicians from other performing art is the precision required in the performance. A failed joke is a lot easier to compensate for than a magic trick gone wrong. Right. (laughs) Yeah, it's a little bit more difficult to overcome errors considering the all-or-nothing nature of magic tricks. Also, there usually isn't someone's life potentially at risk if a musician flubs a note. Yeah. Dr. Greengrass added that what also distinguishes magicians from many other creatives is that they, quote, not only create their own magic tricks, but also perform them, while most creative groups are either creators or performers. Which is true, except for comedians and singer-songwriters, which they mention, right, are in the rare group that do both. Well, and I disagree as well, because I I went to Vegas relatively recently, and we saw several magic shows. And if you pay attention, it's the same half a dozen tricks. Every (gasps) single show did the same tricks with a completely different rapper and a completely different setup. And one guy was doing it as a comedian, and one guy was doing it as, you know, the ha-ha, the guy with the cape or whatever. But it literally was the same (laughs) contraption doing the same gimmick. And Mm -hmm. so I I disagree that a lot of magicians make up their own tricks. I think we've kind of perfected a certain set of magic tricks. And for a brand new magic trick to come out is actually pretty rare. Hmm. Right. You have to be on that upper level of household name, like David Copperfield kind of stuff. Or get on that Penn Mm -hmm. and Teller show, Fool Us, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And to be fair, from what I understand, too, it's mostly their assistants doing the hard work on stage. (laughs) Right, right, right. And their assistants, they crazy. They're not even remotely like. <laughs> right, go sit in that tiny little contraption that you might die in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And action. <laughs> oh, and you're not going to get any of the credit for it. When right, you get, exactly. When you get exactly. Out of there. Yeah. Now, what they could quantify as different so far was that magicians scored low on impulse nonconformity. You know, a trait associated with breaking the law, breaking the (laughs) law, or we're not going to take it, or I can't drive 55, or any Rage Against the Machine song. Right, right. (laughs) Moral of the story, if you're going to date an entertainer and you don't like volatility, (laughs) date a magician. All right. I will keep that in mind. (laughs) (laughs) Next link. Next link. All right. This next headline is the opposite of clickbait. It's a bit of a mouthful. It's called, When We See What Others Do, Our Brain Sees Not What We See, But What We Expect. Ah, me winning isn't, you do. Yes. (laughs) Is that a quote from Finnegan's Wake? (laughs) Right, right, right. (laughs) And to be fair, uh, clunky titles, and I'll be honest, quite a few typos in this article, are kind of part of the trade-off I think we have to make when the article comes not from a slick news source, but directly from the researchers themselves at a place called the Netherlands Institute for Neuroscience. Because their job is to be good at neuroscience, right? They can't be good at everything. But the research they're talking about in here is pretty fascinating. And like some other recent stories we've covered, it was only possible because the study participants were already involved in a completely unrelated medical procedure. Because, you know, of course, one of the issues with brain research is we're generally limited to viewing activity from the outside, either through EEGs or fMRIs. And these are pretty great for what they are. But the fact remains, you are not getting nearly the kind of detail you could be getting if you inserted electrical nodes directly into a person's brain. Obviously, there's some ethical problems with that. (laughs) Not a lot of volunteers. But there are situations in which people do have these scanning electrodes implanted, specifically in the case of severe epilepsy, 
where the seizures have not responded to medication and the only option left is to remove the part of their brain where the seizures originate. The thing is, if they're going to do something that drastic, they want to make sure they get it right. So in those cases, they do an initial surgery to implant a ton of electrodes underneath the skull, and then they just sit there and wait for the patient to have a seizure, live on camera, as it were, so they can know down to the millimeter where they do and do not want to be cutting. And in the meantime, these patients are awake in a hospital bed for hours or even days with a bunch of implants in their skull and nothing to do. So the team at the Netherlands Institute saw their opportunity and they took it. I mean, it was still voluntary. The patients agreed. But But what the Netherlands team wanted to look at is this sort of known phenomenon where when we watch someone else perform an action, it doesn't just light up the visual cortex of our brain. It also lights up the parietal and premotor regions, which means we're not just seeing something. We're also inherently remembering and associating what it felt like when we've done that action ourselves in the past. And the assumption has been that it goes in that order, right? We see something and it triggers the memory of our experience with that action. But with these better, deeper brain implants, the research team was able to show that for the most part, it actually goes in the other direction. We start to see something, but as soon as the parietal cortex recognizes what we're seeing, it starts sending its own signals back to the visual cortex and suppressing the original data coming in. (gasps) We literally start to see in the visual cortex of our brain what the rest of our brain says we should be seeing based on our own experiences. Which means your memories of an event don't just change over time. They're bad data from the start. You are always, Mm -hmm. to a pretty significant degree, seeing what you want to see or at least what you expect to see. Which is, I don't know, a little bit of an existential crisis if you're (laughs) like, you can't trust anything. But the team did find some good news amidst this very depressing knowledge. So initially, the watch someone do an activity video was of a guy making breakfast, right? He picked up some toast, he picked up a knife, he put some butter on the knife, etc. But when the researchers moved these little discrete clips out of order, the patient's brain activity remained flowing in the, quote, correct direction from the visual cortex to the parietal region. Because the task was wrong and unexpected and the rest of the brain was like, nope, I do not have experience with this weird thing. So it never started telling the visual cortex what to see. Which means the danger of us misremembering or misjudging what we see is far more likely to occur with normal everyday events and not so much with surprising or unusual things. That being said, whatever we see at the time is still subject to all the standard revisionist things we do with our memories after the fact. This just basically proves that we can't even be sure of what we're seeing as we're seeing it and we're just walking around hallucinating all the time. (laughs) Yeah, and and in our last story, magicians wouldn't have a job. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it's like when a magician watches another magician do a trick where maybe the magician on stage screws it up. But the guy in the audience is like, oh, he did that perfectly because <laughs> I would have. <laughs> Next link. Next link. All right. From live science, it's time for you all to get to know the gum leaf skeletonizer. Yes, what? this is a moth that generates head cases, kind of like molting. And then it piles them on top of each other like a series of hats to protect itself from (laughs) predators. If you guys have ever played Super Mario Brothers 2 in those desert levels, 
you know those little like spiky caterpillar head things that kind of oh yeah yeah okay it's like that with like a trailing fuzzy body that looks like a normal caterpillar it's (laughs) like all stacked up on his head that's yes yes quite literally there's a picture and i highly encourage you to visit it of course it hails from australia and new zealand because where else would it be from and that macabre adornment is why it is earned the nickname of the mad hatter pillar oh that's nice it is nice and it's also cute and spooky it's a very adams family kind of creature so why the heck does it do it okay There was a study published in 2016 that investigated this question by holding trials, which to me is a scientific (laughs) way of being like bum fights, but with insects. So they they held trials involving the caterpillars and their natural predators, which are spiders and stink bugs. And what they found is that attacks on the larvae with a stack of these head cases Those attacks took 10 times longer than attacks on larvae that had the head stack removed. So these empty head capsules acted as a false target for predators and could also be used to deflect the piercing rostrum of a predator. They're also covered with these hollow venomous spines or hairs. If you've ever seen a hairy caterpillar and you're like, oh, it looks fuzzy. Don't touch it. Don't touch it. Don't touch (laughs) it because they are hollow venomous spines that contain histamines that can cause caterpillar dermatitis where you get a horrible little (laughs) rash. And the venom can remain within the spines even after a caterpillar sheds its skin. Its common English name is derived from the caterpillar's eating habits. They eat eucalyptus leaves gregariously with multiple individuals on the same leaf. (laughs) They go through both the upper sides of the leaf, but they don't like the veins. They leave those skeletal-looking remains of the munched leaf. And that's how you Hmm. can tell the presence of these caterpillars, because they will slow the growth of eucalyptus trees. They could even kill them. Hmm. Now, they are considered a bit of a pest to New Zealand because they are endemic to Australia. But to combat them, ecologists released a species of small parasitoid wasp as a biological control agent. This is so violent, y'all. It was a big project. New Zealand has no native insects with the stinging hair and human health was one of the reasons they wanted to avoid the outbreaks. Yeah, things have got to be pretty bad if you're releasing wasps to get yeah. rid of the caterpillars. Yeah. Like Parasitic that, that feels wasps. <laughs> really poorly thought out, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, because what are we going to do to take care of the wasp population? Mm-hmm. AI. Mm-hmm. AI is going to help us here. AI right? will do it. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next link. This article comes to us from futurism.com. It's titled, New Device Can Keep Brain Alive for Hours Without Body. Oh, all right. Oh. Yeah. So related to horrifying brain things, uh, right, right. a team led by the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas took two pigs and severed the connections between their heads and bodies, instead hooking the brains up to a device they call the Extracorporeal Pulsatile Circulatory Control, or uh. EPCC, which they detailed in a paper published in the journal Scientific Reports. The machine keeps blood pumping through the brain, mimicking the natural flow when it's connected to the rest of the body. The intent behind this nightmarish procedure was to study the brain independently from other bodily functions that may influence it, but the system may also lead to better-designed cardiopulmonary bypass, a process in which machines take over your heart and lung function during surgery. The procedure involved the research team putting the two pigs under anesthesia while hooked up to monitors to keep track of vital signs. They then cut open the skulls to put electrode probes on their brains, severed important arteries connecting the brain to the rest of the body, and hooked them up to the EPCC, which takes the form of a complex system of tubes and a pump controlled by software designed to replicate natural blood flow in the brain. 
Despite the severed link, they were able to keep the brains functioning normally for five hours. Ooh. A grisly achievement for sure, but a medically <laughs> impressive one as well. Yeah, yeah. Because of the experiment, the research team was able to study the impact of sugar on the brain, separate from other mechanisms in the body that may Ooh. alter the process. In terms of future applications, the research team is intrigued that the new process pumps blood like the human heart in contrast with existing cardiopulmonary bypass devices, which send blood through the body in a continuous flow. Having a cardiopulmonary bypass that operates more like the human heart would avoid complications from existing bypass devices, the research team speculated. Mm. And heck, maybe someday after your body dies, they'll be able to slap your brain into one of these bad boys, either a reprieve <laughs> from death or a grim new afterlife, depending on your point of view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is, so many of the diseases that we're suffering from now are brain diseases. We're dying of Alzheimer's and Parkinson's. I mean, until you can solve that, it's like, oh, you get an extra couple of years in a mm -hmm. jar, which, you know, nothing to sneeze at. Yeah, I, I think I'm on the just let me die camp <laughs> Right, <personally>. right, right. <laughs> uh, but, oh, you know, no. I understand. Put me, a, put me in a robot body. I'm going to go solve crime. <laughs> Yeah, true. If there's a body. Yeah, if you can do it, like, right now and get rid of the things where it's like, my body doesn't digest food very well. I'd really like just a slurry of nutrients constantly fed into my brain and I can go do other things. Yeah. That would be all right. Does it have to be a jar? Can we, like, become Kit from Knight Rider? Yeah. yeah. In, in the future, there'll be all sorts of form factors for your brain. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. One little bit of housekeeping news. While we were unexpectedly out last week, we passed the four-year <gasps> anniversary of this podcast. Hooray! So that's Ooh. very exciting. I thought about doing a whole thing where I'm like, let's count how many times we've said next link and how many articles. And then I didn't because I was tired and I went back to sleep. But we're very glad that everyone has stuck with us and supported this podcast. And we appreciate all of you. And we hope to keep doing it for many years to come. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include The Hunt for Life in Alpha Centauri, Why I Spent Three Years Working on a Coat Hanger, and What If Money Expired. So all that and more, plus everything we talked about today, can, as it has been for the last four years, be found on DamnInteresting.com. If you like our podcast and you want to support us, you can do so at Patreon.com slash DamnInterestingWeek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. I'm Bradley Calhoun. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.